Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our Bible study series examines a specific part of God's Word of Truth. We pray that through this study your faith will be built up and you will grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word through what you hear. Welcome back to Burden and Blessing and our Bible study series. We are continuing in through the study of the book of Genesis. We've begun with this book of beginnings, taking a look at the creation of the world, marriage. And now we come to Genesis chapter 3. And this chapter also is going to answer a lot of questions for us as to why we see what we see in the world around us. If God is good and he created everything perfectly, then why is there sin in the world? And this chapter is going to highlight not only the, the origin of sin and the fall into sin, but also the results of sin and the first promise of a Savior. Joining me to go through Genesis chapter 3 is once again Pastor Mark Tiefel. Mark, looking forward to getting into this proto-evangel, the first announcement of the gospel here in Genesis chapter 3 with you. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of important subject matter in this chapter, just as we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Let's start with the opening verses of the chapter. We've already laid the stage for this with the fact that God has put Adam in a garden. We've heard about the trees that God planted in the garden. He's warned about one of these trees in particular, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then as we get into chapter three, then we're introduced to one of the, the animals that God created, uh, but it's more than what it appears. Do you want to take us into the opening couple of verses of Genesis chapter three? Yeah, so we, we have the Garden of Eden introduced for us in Genesis chapter two. And as chapter three begins, the, main, the first main character is not Adam or Eve, it's the serpent. And what's interesting about the serpent is it's an animal, but it's allowed to talk and it converses with Adam and Eve and it, and it brings temptation into the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. And so we recognize very clearly that the serpent here is Satan. Now we don't necessarily know the nature of the, the form that was taken here. Obviously um, Satan was present and there, the Bible calls this a serpent and so there must have been something about satan who with the ability to uh, take the form of an animal or some something of that nature the lord allowed him to be able to do that um, and to offer this temptation to adam and eve and so the bible talks elsewhere about the fall of satan that he was one of god's original created angels uh, but then he rebelled and so that happened sometime before this event here so we, we've got that happening here in the at some point in the first two chapters of genesis before we get to chapter three here where satan now takes the form of a serpent and offers this temptation to adam and eve just in case some of our listeners are wondering how do we know for sure that the devil or satan which are two words that you use there is the serpent that occurs in genesis chapter three it might be helpful to look up Revelation chapter 12. That's a familiar chapter in the New Testament where the Lord tells us, he makes the connection. He says this great dragon of Revelation chapter 12 is the serpent of old who is the devil or Satan. So that's a helpful cross-reference if you don't have that in your Bibles to make the connection that Mark was just discussing there. 
that tells us who this serpent is or that Satan has uh, taken the form of this serpent in the garden. Oh, that's a great thing to point out because it can be difficult. And I think there's another uh, passage that references that connection with Satan. I think that comes from Romans chapter 16. In verse 20 there, it says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Um, and so I've always made that connection there to what you mentioned, the first gospel promise in verse 15, where to me, that's another uh, clear link between the serpent and Satan, where the Lord promises in verse 15 there that the, the coming savior would crush this serpent. And so very clearly, Jesus came to defeat Satan. And so making that connection clear there through the gospel promise. But yes, uh, important and helpful to use the rest of scripture as well to try to understand this somewhat confusing scene here at the beginning of chapter three. Uh, but I often tell people when we look at the nature of the way that the serpent here interacted with Adam and Eve, I often tell people, you know, in pastoral counseling, for example, when you're struggling to communicate with someone, how you talk to them or how you introduce the topic has a great effect on where the direction of that topic goes. For example, if you're frustrated at something that maybe your friend or your relative or a sibling is doing, it makes a lot more sense to express to them how you feel about it rather than to get accusatory of them right away. If depending on the two, the two ways that you take there on how you introduce the topic, that will have a huge bearing on where that topic goes and how it affects that individual. We see that here with the way that Satan introduces the lie, basically, to Adam and Eve. He's very subtle. He's very crafty. Um, and he introduces it with a question. Verse one, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I think the way that the serpent asked that question had a great impact on what it, what it caused for Adam and Eve, because he, he didn't come out right away and say, well, God told you that this is going to happen or, or that's not going to happen. God's lying. He didn't put that in front of Adam and Eve right away. He introduced it through a subtle question, making it sound as if there was some logic or truth behind it that Adam and Eve were being held out by God on. And that was a huge part of the way that the temptation took root in first Eve's heart and that then also Adam's. And so we see the Lord describes the serpent as more cunning than any beast of the field. We see that come out very clearly at the beginning of chapter three here, all, right away in the first verse. So the first question, and there's going to be a number of questions that the devil is going to ask through this temptation or this process of temptation. But the first one in verse two, which you read earlier, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden is interesting because he, as you pointed out, his intent there is sort of to sow the seed of doubt, right? But the question is much broader. It's not, did God say you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He actually broadens the question out to all of the trees, right? So it's, it's slightly different he doesn't flat out lie, but it's just there, as you pointed out, a question to sow the seed of doubt in the mind of Eve. How does that work? How does she respond? Well, she responds appropriately in one sense in the fact that she affirms what God says, but she also adds a little bit to it as well. She says, we may eat 
of the, the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the, which is in the midst, God says, you shall not eat it. But she also adds, you shall not touch it lest you die. So there was something more in Eve's mind, I think, there than what God had originally said in chapter two. I mean, obviously, we could probably make the connection that if, if Adam and Eve recognize that they shouldn't eat of it, then they probably are, they probably add to that not touching it, you know, better, better not to even deal with it. So maybe that's what was in her mind there. But she answers basically in substance with what the Lord said in chapter two, uh, that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is off limits for them. This is the one tree that he's holding away from them. Uh, All the other trees are open to them. And she, she affirms that. And you're right, Satan, the way he asked that he almost asked it from the negative perspective of, you know, oh, well, God didn't really let you eat of every tree, did he? Even though there was only one tree among all of them that God limited. So what he does there is instead of having Eve focus on all the things that God opens up to her, he brings her attention to the one thing that God has restricted. And you can, you can just tell, we've been in those situations before. Again, the way that the question is asked, the way that it directs our focus has a huge impact on where the, that, the rest of that question will lead us. And you can see how that would happen here with Eve, where, the, like you mentioned, the seed of doubt was sown into her, her mind at that point, and it started to take root, and, and Satan built on that as he moved along. So once that seed has taken root, and we can see it in Eve's response, where, like you said, she adds to it. It's not that she couldn't eat it. She said, we can't even touch it. So there's this idea, yeah, God is keeping something back from us. We can't even, we can't even touch it. Where does the devil go from there then? Well, there you have in verse 4, the blatant lie. So once there's doubt and confusion in Eve's mind, that's when Satan puts out the blatant lie. And he says, you will not surely die. And God had made it extremely clear. Do not eat of it because you will die if you do. God did not, God did not waffle on that point. That was not confusing. Adam and Eve understood that point entirely. I think that if, if the serpent or Satan would have opened with this statement that you will not die, that would have been clear enough for Adam and Eve to recognize and to squash right away. Now, maybe that's not the way it would have worked out. I don't know. But when there's confusion in one's mind, when there's an idea that God is holding out on them, when that doubt is there, then the lie is not as clear to detect. And so Satan interjects that right away. But then he adds a little bit of an element of truth to it as well. It's always, it's always sort of a half lie with Satan or a half truth. And, and then he goes, he says in verse five, for God knows that the day of you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that's always a confusing verse to understand of what is the, what is, what was the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve supposedly did not have um, before the fall into sin? And, and what was that like? We don't know. We don't know exactly what the nature of that was like. But what, what, what you can say is that there was something about Adam and Eve where they did not have this knowledge, this awareness, I might call it, of good and evil in the sense that God was trying to keep from them. And so Satan advertises as, a, as an attractive thing, speaks in a half truth and says, well, if you do eat of it, you will know good and evil in this way like God does. But that's, that was something that God said, this is not meant for humanity. This is not something I want them to have. This is not something, this is in the realm of God only. 
And then that's what Satan wasn't honest about was the consequence of exiting the healthy barrier that God had put in for humanity. And God wasn't withholding it from them, but he didn't want them to experience that because it wasn't good for them. And like you said, the devil takes that and twists it and said, this is something you really should desire. It's striking to me, Mark, how as we take a look at these temptations of the devil, the devil does the exact same thing to us today, doesn't he? He works in the very same way to get us to doubt the goodness of God. He flat out lies about things that are real or true. And he used half-truths, you know, things that are partially true that God has said. And you think about the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels, we have the same thing. He uses lies, half-truths, and sows doubt of the goodness of God. So those temptations are the very same temptations time and time again, even in our own lives. Absolutely. And I always tell people, Satan knows that he can't go head-on with God and win, he knows that he has to be, he, he has to operate in the, in the scum. He has to operate in, in the lower levels. He has to go beneath and he has to use subversive tactics. And this, you see that happening from the very beginning. I think, I think Satan knew that if he came out and just blatantly lied to Adam and Eve and just tried to go head on with God's truth, he was going to get crushed, but he, he was more crafty about it. And, and, and throughout the rest of the Bible, God continually warns about this nature of Satan, that he is deceptive. Jesus called him the father of all lies in John 8. Um, and lying doesn't just involve the substance of the statement that you say. It also involves how you operate as a person. And so we need to recognize that, as you said, for our lives, uh, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We are not in the same situation as Adam and Eve, but Satan uses the same tactics because that's, that's the only way he can get a Christian to fall from God's truth, to, to fall from the protection that we have through our faith is to almost get us to forfeit it ourselves, to offer it up ourselves because he cannot go head on with God and win. That's a really good point. So Eve takes of the fruit. And by the way, it wasn't an apple. It was, it was, it just describes it as fruit. So we don't know what fruit it was. Yeah. A lot of times we see it as a picture like that, but it was, it was fruit. She took the fruit. She shared it with Adam. He ate, we're told in verse seven, that their eyes were opened. They recognized that they were naked. They sewed clothes for themselves. Let's jump ahead then to the next section. God then comes into the garden. And this is an interesting section, Mark, because we describe God and we confess him as being omniscient. That's a fancy Latin term that means he's all-knowing. This section doesn't seem like he's all-knowing because he's asking a lot of questions. So let's get into those questions and why it is that God is asking those questions. He comes to the garden. He's searching for Adam. His first question is, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Absolutely. So what was the purpose of the question there? Well, I think what he's doing is wanting Adam and Eve to be honest about what had happened and to talk to God about that. You know, obviously there was something about the, the relationship between God and Adam and Eve in the garden where they had this interaction, they had this communion together, this ability to converse. Um, I think God wanted that. that is, isn't that part of a relationship that you have with someone that you love is you want them to be honest about it. But I also think that goes back to asking a lot of people ask, why would God even put the tree in the garden? 
why did God allow Satan to come and offer the temptation? Why didn't God just protect them? And, and we have the same question here of why does God even ask these questions? And I think to me, the answer comes back to when we, when God puts those opportunities in front of people, even if they're not something he, 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 he doesn't want them to do what Satan is trying to tempt them to do, but it is an opportunity to glorify God. It's an opportunity to build that relationship with him. It's an opportunity to show faithfulness to God by saying no to the temptation. That's another similar nature to our lives as well. We might wonder, why does God put me in that difficult situation? Why was God seemingly unfair to me in my life? Why did God allow that hardship to enter? I thought he protects his loved ones. I thought he cares for his children. Well, those are opportunities to grow stronger in our faith. They're opportunities to glorify his name. They're opportunities to point others to God. It's, it's kind of that I am the vine, you are the branches. That's how fruit is born in, in, in a multiplying way, sometimes out of the seeds of adversity and temptation. And so I've always likened these questions here to that, where it was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to repent and to come clean with God and to confess what had happened um, and to reaffirm their devotion to him. Uh, but obviously, God knew everything that had happened already. There are a number of questions, and, and I agree with you, you know, that this is an opportunity for them to repent. We have the first question, where are you? Adam comes and he says, I hid myself. I realized that I was naked. The Lord comes back with another question. He says, who told you you were naked? And then he asks this question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God knew the answer to that question. He knew what had happened, but he's asking that in order for Adam to come clean. Does he come to the point that the Lord wanted him to come to? And same thing with Eve, with the next couple of questions. I think Adam and Eve did what we typically do and that is they took the easy path and when you're when you're confronted with a failure of your own the easy path is always to point out somebody else's fault instead of recognizing maybe in a in the perspective of a visual instead of recognizing how you've fallen from that a standard and trying to come back up to that you try to knock everybody else down to that level that you've fallen to you know, and that's, that's what Adam did. He blames Eve. The woman did this, but then he also blames God. The woman that you gave me, God did this. That's, that's pretty low by Adam there. But then Eve does the same thing when the Lord goes to Eve next and the Lord asks her, and she was the one that first interacted with the serpent. She blames the serpent. Now, I mean, Eve was, she was right. She was justified. It was wrong that the serpent did that. But when you're caught in a wrong, the way forward is not to knock others down to your level and just stay there. God wants you to get past that and to, to recognize the error that you had as well, to take responsibility for that. And Eve certainly did not want to take personal responsibility for that. She wanted to blame the serpent. So, it, it, And then the focus comes back down to the serpent is, is where the focus is at. It kind of reminds me of the, the old expression, the devil made me do it. Yeah, yeah, Which, absolutely. Like you said, there's some truth in that, in that the devil laid the temptation, but the devil can't force us to do anything. That's, and that's why I brought out that earlier point of the devil knows that he can't go head to head with God. That's why the devil can't force you to do anything, because God is, a, God is your protector. 
the, the thing that the devil wants you to do is to give up that protection that God offers. And God, you mentioned with the free will, the Lord doesn't force either. He doesn't force you to trust in him. If he, he, he warns and warns and warns our, our, our lives, just as he did for Adam, he do not do these things. I'm trying to protect you, but he won't force you to accept them. And so the same thing happens today for us as well. That's the same way that Satan works is he gets us to almost offer, give up what God has given us. There's an interesting switch that takes place after Eve points out the role of the serpent in all of this. We're going to talk about the Lord's words now to the serpent, which is where our promise comes in. Do you think there's something in the fact that the Lord questions them, gives them, as, as we talked about, an opportunity to repent, but when it comes to the serpent, the next character in this line, there is no questioning of the devil. The Lord doesn't say, what have you done? How did you do it? Why did you do it? Anything like that. He simply lays out the curse, the results of sin. Any thoughts on that? I think it just shows the difference between God's relationship with mankind and we could maybe say his relationship with the angels because <clears throat> Satan was an angel or his relationship with the demons that the Lord knows that, 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 that relationship is not the same. There is no opportunity for demons to repent. They are not saved. Uh, they are not, they are not uh, the same as God's creation of humanity. And I think the Lord recognized in his wisdom as well um, that Satan there, there, there was nothing there other than evil and, and Satan, it wasn't like Adam and Eve, you know, Satan, Satan chose to rebel against God. It wasn't uh, being led into temptation in that way. And so, yeah, I think there is something to the fact that there, there's no point in questioning the serpent, really. Um, the, the curse is leveled and, and uh, the curse that we're going to see um, play out in the rest of the scriptures about how God is going to deliver on that promise to the serpent. Let's dig into verses 14 and, and primarily verse 15. The Lord now speaks to the serpent and these verses are both a curse and a promise at the same time. And it's interesting to me that the Lord is directing his words to the serpent in these verses. He's not talking to Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve are certainly overhearing what the Lord is telling the serpent and while it is a curse to the devil, it is a promise for Adam and Eve. Do you want to get into to those verses? Yeah, well, verse 14 is, is just the curse on the serpent itself. You'll be lower than every, any other form of, of animal, of beast, and you will go on your belly and eat the dust. Uh, but verse 15 is really the important one. And here's, here's an example where context is so important to properly understand what's being said here. I'm sure a lot of people don't think that this verse is all that important to their lives. But in the context, God is speaking to the serpent. But then in biblical context, to also understand what he's describing here is so incredibly important. And the Lord says to the serpent, he's going to put enmity, hatred. I look at it as conflict between the woman and between the serpent, um, between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And what we see there is the division of believer-unbeliever. Um, where the Lord is indicating the seed of the woman being the people of God um, the, the, and, and the human race in general, there's conflict between them and Satan because of the, the general nature of Satan 
looking for the destruction of humanity. Again, that's that's veiled in temptation, in in solicitation for pleasure, in in trying to get people to feel like they're getting pleasure and happiness in the world. Uh, Satan is going to cover that and conceal that in many ways, but it's really what it is at the heart of it is it's conflict between the way that humanity was created by God and the way and the path that Satan would have for them. Um, and then you, the most important element is that the, the chosen seed of the woman was ultimately the savior who was going to come. And that was the conflict on the, maybe the secondary level of conflict between the serpent and humanity is that a, a Messiah, a savior would come from the line of the woman, would come as a human. And the Lord says there and basically crush the head of the serpent, bruise the head of the serpent. Um, so a lot, you, you, you get a sense of what what it means for our lives in relation to Satan's temptations. There's enmity there, there's conflict there, but then also more importantly, what Christ would come to do. And here's where, again, taking the rest of the context of the Bible, we have passages that indicate for us that God was referring to Jesus here. Galatians 3 is an example where the apostle Paul references Jesus as the seed of the woman, that that's what God was talking about when he gave that promise here. Uh, so this is why we called, as you mentioned, the protoevangel, the first gospel. The, this is the first promise of the gospel in the scriptures, that God would send a savior to redeem mankind, but also to defeat Satan. And, and I've, I've always tried to point out how important it is that just a few verses after the first sin, God already promises the first message of the savior. You, you can tell um, how, how important that is for our lives here in this one chapter. And, you know, I think there's something else beneficial in the way that the Lord approaches this. He brings the curse against the serpent. He lists the promise, which Adam and Eve overhear. And this is going to come up in the next chapter when we come back to this next time. But he lays out the promise before he turns to Adam and Eve and talks about the consequences of their sin in their lives so like you were talking about the lord starts with the good news i'm going to judge the serpent i am going to send a savior but here are the immediate consequences of your actions in your life now and moving forward and the lord breaks it down he has a section that he addresses to eve he has a section that he addresses to adam and then we also hear from the Apostle Paul and other places in the scriptures that this also affects the creation itself. So it's not just human beings that have now inherited sin, that sin is passed down from one generation to the next, but the, the curse has also fallen upon the created perfect world as well. And as Paul says, now the, the creation itself groans under the burden of sin. Let's get into the, the results of sin and how it affects the woman. Verse 16, you want to go into that? getting into these verses where God lays out the curses that'll be on humanity, it is important to remember that there are consequences to our actions. And when there are negative consequences, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us anymore. As you mentioned appropriately, God laid out the promise first, but we also have to accept that there are going to be consequences for wrongdoing. And so I think that is one, definitely one element we learn about our faith and our lives from this section as well is that God will 
punish at times. God will bring consequences at times. And we see that in the Bible. And that is a big stumbling block for a lot of people is the way that God punishes, judges, and brings consequences and then his loving nature. But we see that already here that there are going to be consequences there. For the woman, the the main consequence, the main curse of the sin was that childbearing would be difficult. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know what childbearing was going to look like in the perfect world. Uh, if that was an element of that, uh, if God, God has not said anything about that other than be fruitful and multiply earlier, earlier in Genesis, but something changed and, and it led to the pain of childbirth that we see today, the difficulty of it. And we know that there can be many difficulties associated with that very, very difficult things at times. The secondary thing in verse 16 that talks about the woman's curse is basically conflict between her and her husband. Um, the passage says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So we typically refer to that dynamic in marriage as the headship principle that the Lord gives the husband the, the position of, a, of the head of the family. Um, and it's always important to remember what that means in a biblical sense. But the Lord reminds Eve because of that, uh, the curse of sin, that's going to generate conflict in your relationship with your husband. That's going to lead to difficulty there. So we might recognize a secondary consequence here to the woman is the struggle of having to submit to a sinful husband. And, and you know, just putting it that way shows us how difficult that can be. And we know that a lot of, a lot of issues in marriages and in relationships can arise because of a conflict of the roles that God has assigned to husband and wife. It's interesting to me, Mark, that the two curses that we have laid out here, or maybe maybe curses a little bit strong, but the results of sin in, in relationship to the woman are directly related to what God stated in connection with the marriage relationship in, in and before the fall into sin. The idea of companionship and that relationship between husband and wife, which was to be a perfect harmony that is gone now. And then the other thing that's procreation, the result of children that would fulfill God's blessing of filling the earth, that that too would be a difficult thing. Those two things, which God desired to be a good and wonderful thing are now going to be full of sin in the woman's life. The result for the man is going to be different. Let's go on into verses 17 through 19. What is the curse there that the Lord lays upon the man? What's the result? We see for Adam, the curses involving work, that work would be difficult. And again, like you said, with childbearing, with the relationship between the man and the woman, something that was good by God's design at the beginning is now turned in, is now warped in a way that's going to create conflict. And God gave Adam the responsibility of tending the garden, of working. Work was a blessing. It was a, as a, a gift of God. And now that's going to be difficult. And here's where we see the effect on creation as well. Thorns and thistles that the, the plants will bring forth. It will take sweat. It will take effort. It'll be difficult to earn a living, we might say, or to bring results from the creation now. Uh, God designed things to work perfectly and food was going to be in abundance for Adam and Eve. It was going to be easily produced. It wasn't going to take effort on their part in a difficult way. But now that's all going to change. And partly because the, like you mentioned, the rest of creation is cursed now too. The plants and the animals live with this bondage under sin as well.
it is worth noting what our world has done to what God lays out here. In the results of sin, God lays out pretty clearly the man and woman roles that he intends for them to have in society, in the family, etc. And that indicates the family is very important for the woman, the relationship between children and husband, and the work providing for the family as far as the husband's role. And it's interesting to me that what we see here, we've taken that in our world today, and we've really tried to turn that upside down. And especially in our modern world where we want to change these roles in the marriage relationship or gender roles or all of that is turned upside down from what God is laying out here in these opening chapters of Genesis. Yeah. And you see a little bit of that with the curse to one of the the consequences to Eve of your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. God says the, the roles that he's given the husband and the wife do not change. The husband, you know, in the New Testament, God still speaks to us that the husband is the head of the family, the leader there that God has put there. But that's going to be a very difficult thing now because of sin. The husband is going to be an imperfect leader. The husband's going to do things that are wrong. And it's it's going to be a struggle for the wife to follow that and to obey what God has put into place there. And, and then, you know, we know that, you know, when God puts down the consequence to Adam of you know, the work will be difficult. You know, he's not saying that only the husband or only the male can work, but at the same time, providing for the family, protecting the family can take many different forms. And one of the consequences we see in our culture today is a lot of delinquent fathers, a lot of displaced fathers that don't accept their role to provide for their wife or their children and, and to step up and lead in that way. And it, it, again, it's not just about the job you have. It's not just about who gets the income that takes many different forms, spiritual leading, emotional leading, um, relational leading in the family, you know, the, the father is to set the tone in all of those things and to be the leader that, that, that brings forth. And you just see here, it almost pains you today to read that because you see the problems we have in our world today as a result. It's all, it's all come from this, all come from this one point. And um, there's a lot of pain and heartache in our world today that goes back to, as you mentioned, the instability of family, which leads to the instability of society, which leads to the instability of governments and, and nations. And, and they're all connected because God designed it to start with one man and one woman working together. And sin was, as God warned, sin destroyed that. We are going to come back to this in following chapters. We're going to see more and more of the results that the Lord has already laid out here in these opening verses. But let's wrap this chapter up with the expulsion of the garden. There's two interesting things that are brought up in the final verses of this chapter. One is the first, the first recorded death. God takes animals and kills the animals in order to cover Adam and Eve, which is a beautiful picture of that coming sacrifice, uh, the blood of Jesus covering our, us and, and giving us righteousness. So there's that picture there that is developed, but then also the reason that God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Do you want to just touch on that briefly as we conclude? Well, we probably think of it on the, off the top of our head that God was unloving and just angry at them. And so he expelled them from the garden. But when you look a little bit deeper into the text, you see that it was actually an act of mercy by God. And the, the Lord is quoted in verse 22 saying, um, let us 
put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. We need to, we need to move Adam and Eve out of the garden because of that. So what God did not want to happen was for Adam and Eve to live forever in this imperfect state. God already had put a plan in motion of sending a savior to redeem mankind. Um, and, and we know that that timeline was now in, in place. But if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life, God indicates for us that they would live forever in this per perpetual state of sorrow, wickedness, pain, and, and sin. And God did not want that to happen. So God places that as the reason why he sends them out of the garden. I think there was an element of they had lost the privilege as well, but it wasn't an act of anger by God. He wasn't acting in anger towards them or resentment toward them. He was acting in love. And so they're placed outside of the garden, which certainly would have, I mean, you think about God had, God had created that garden specifically to provide food for them to be perfect for them. Okay, so here's where the consequence to, to mankind is going to begin with the difficulty of finding food immediately because they're placed out of the garden. And then we can recognize that however God chose to protect the garden, it says there he put a flaming sword to guard it. Um, they were not allowed back in. We can say that much. And then certainly at the time of the flood, the Garden of Eden would have been destroyed at that point. Well, we will come back to this. I think that's a, a valuable thing to, again, see the mercy of God. A lot of times as we read through chapter three, we see the judgment, the judgment, the judgment. But the mercy of God is really what shines through in this chapter. If we're looking for that, and we see God's mercy to Adam and Eve and sending the Savior, the proto-evangel there in verse 15. We see the mercy of God in sparing them the burden of living forever in a sinful state, in a sinful world. And we're going to come back to that later on. And we're going to see how in the next chapter, the Lord, through this promise that he makes to Adam and Eve, they take that promise to heart. And they're they're waiting for and expecting that promise to be fulfilled by the Lord in his time, not necessarily in theirs. Mark, thanks for taking us through this extremely important chapter as we continue our series on Genesis. Look forward to getting in the next chapter with you next time. May the Lord in his rich grace continue to strengthen you through the knowledge and understanding of his word and give you the confidence of his mercy, which is new every morning. We hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of Burden and Blessing Podcast as we continue to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Until next time, take confidence in your Savior's promise that he will always be with you, even to the end of the world.